Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Now we should uh, welcome my author today, Alex Miles. Good morning, Alex. Good morning. And my author, Sally Abbott. Good morning, Sally. Pleasure to be here. Now, here we go with our authors. <laughs> this is what we're about. Jen, what the, lies ahead? What does? Well, <laughs> Sally Abbott's novel, Closing Down, takes us to an Australia in the not-too-distant future. So, Sally, welcome to 3CR. No, it really is great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, this future you depict is neatly summed up in uh, the media headlines we occasionally get in this novel. Hellish heat closes U.S. states. Canada outbids China for Brazil. My Amber Mandolin Quartet plays tonight in Town Hall and bring your own chair. Power crashes in U.K. Global commodity prices up 4% overnight. International Refugee Station 7 nears completion. Will shelter 12 million. Have you seen Ditsy missing since Saturday morning? 200,000 dead in northern African drought. Remember your vitamin D every day, twice a day. What's happening to the world? Well, the story is set, as you said, in the not-too-distant future. Um, And I think that elements of the impacts of sort of climate change and climate trauma, um, refugee crisis as more and more people are displaced, uh, these these things are coming together to make the world ever more difficult for, for the people living in it in it to the point really where not only is it difficult but it's almost becoming completely absurd. Well I mean we're already dealing with these challenges or having to deal with them. I mean those headlines raised environmental concerns, um, you know the the nature of the bushfires we're getting, floods um, which people, the degree to which you know haven't been seen for hundreds of years, Economic concerns. I mean, we've had a global financial crisis. It is of global concern. And, of course, the refugee problem, uh, Ten, I think the figure is something like 10 million in the world moving yes. each year and, and such like, which is quite extraordinary. Um, you've got little domestic <laughs> things mentioned in there as well. But closer to home then, um, this is the particular challenge, We'll introduce uh, Claire shortly, um, but uh, one of the characters in the novel. But here's what is happening in Australia. Claire spent the last two months of spring working in the closing down towns. Whether she wanted to or not, she had no choice. Anyone unemployed for more than two years was assigned to a local New Horizons work group, which trawled the towns to record, suck out and put to rest what life remained. Where houses and shops had been knocked down, timber and bricks and pipes and chunks of cement and wire were separated and stacked for future collection. Where buildings still stood, rat bait was laid, stray animals were counted, doors and windows were secured, and the lonely scraps of gone-away lives were collected. A towel hanging on a clothesline, a garden rake, a child's tricycle. The New Horizons work groups were under the supervision of the Housing Relocation Management Authority, which was under the administration of the Climate Assets Reallocation Program, which was under the jurisdiction of the National Water and Food Security Task Force, Emergency Bureau 1, which in turn reported to the Bureau for Climate uh, Climate Impact Minimisation and Management, which reported finally to faceless and nameless shadows in the Office 
of the President of the Republic of Australia. Now, it's reassuring to know that we've finally become a republic. <laughs> but that bureaucracy, um, it's is it here? Look, I had a lot of fun actually creating that. Um, <laughs> and I think that's that's where I did play with some notions of absurdity and... But I, I, I'm not. I don't think it's here to the extent that I've outlined in the book. But I, you know, I do as many people do these days: watch the news and shake my head in disbelief at, at sort of some of the spin that we we get and the, you know, the the, the lack of d often direct, simple information and clarity from from um, our leaders. But also, then, I mean, one th um, sort of thing that I thought of was. Um, there, the indigenous um, communities. Well, we can't fund them. It, that's their lifestyle choice. I mean, it was economic rationalism taking place, which is in some ways what you've got here, brought about by, in this instance, climate change. Yeah, and I, I think I've tried in subtle ways to make the point that, at the end of the day, people who are going to be most impacted by climate change and also by just the shifts that we're seeing globally around around the world are the people who are already at a at a disadvantage um, and that that you know that inequality is is only going to grow and grow I think in the in the coming decades um, and Australia's often seen itself as a, a rural uh, or outback and, and the life on the farm, but is that disappearing completely? Look, I, I knew I was going to set my novel in rural regional Australia. I mean, that, I, I knew that as I began writing it. Um, and I was, I was kind of thinking about it and, th and thinking about what the future might look for, for rural Australia. And I do live outside of Melbourne in central Victoria. And I came across a very obscure academic paper on the internet that, that someone had written about whether or not many of Australia's country towns basically are going to be sustainable over the long term. I mean, how do you keep supporting roads and schools and bridges and fire bushfire services and so on and and that that gave me this whole idea of the closing down towns and then closing down almost becoming a, a metaphor for the closing down of emotion how we will cope how we will you know what, what strategies we'll use to survive but it's it's also happening to our primary producers um i mean coals and woolies uh, are demanding lower costs from the primary producer. I mean, my sister and her husband are orchardists, um, and yet they've got to produce a, a certain type of fruit. Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, it's outrageous. It's, 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 it's extraordinary. bureaucratic. Um, what was the dairy farming conglomerate that went belly up and... You know, the the dairy farmers lost their livelihood. So that, for a bottle of milk and yeah. that that whole debate. Um, look, I think I think there is some real angst in in many of of the communities, and there are some real difficulties. And I guess in the in the book, I've just taken that to a, a kind of extreme level. Mm. But a plausible extremity in some ways. Within this environment, we have our characters, Claire, who was uh, working on the closing down uh, of townships, and her husband, Phil. Phil's got a problem. Yeah, Phil doesn't do much and he drinks a lot. And, and 
I th- I th- Claire and Phil, and I'm particularly fond of Claire, um, but I just feel they're kind of people that, you know, they, they've never really had a break in life and there's a lot of people like that and it just things just get tougher and tougher and you just put one foot forward in front of the other to get by. Well, now that you've said one foot in front of the other, walking. Yeah, there's I, a lot of walking. A lot of walking. Claire <laughs> finds comfort in, in walking yes. in many ways just to um, overcome or, or cope with um, the, the um, sort of anxiety she's facing. I think for Claire, it's it's a coping strategy. It's it's a way of sort of getting out of what you know the little what she calls her rat bag cottage that she she lives in and getting away from Phil and just being able to get out and have space and and be able to think and keep keep going. Because Phil's disillusioned, and Claire eventually sends Phil off walking in order to try and rejuvenate him in some ways. Well, I think what happens in the book is because um, many country towns and centres are closing, people are being moved by the government into what's called the inclusion zones, which is the larger cities and there's these horrible cheap apartments are being built to house everyone and there's all these new rules and regulations and some people look at that scenario and just say, no, I can't, mm. I can't do it, I won't do it and, and they are just walking away, literally walking, um, heading, heading north, heading somewhere. And I don't define where that is or how that ends up, um, but but that's the choice that they make and it's the only choice they have. We also have Robbie and Ella, who are a different generation, a younger generation, and the struggles they're having. Robbie's a journalist, Ellie an aid worker. What was the motivation for creating these characters? Um, I, the characters really, all of them just present themselves to me. I don't sort of set out to create... They, they kind of create themselves and then they they took me on this journey and, and on this story. Um, but I, I, I was very aware of sort of using Ella as, as a vehicle to sort of look at what is happening with the displacement of people around the world economically. Because she's sort of an aid worker and Robbie as a journalist is reporting and covering a lot of the dysfunction that's yes. occurring globally. Um, we're going to run out of time, unfortunately, but... Magical realism, the nature of your narrative, am I correct in placing it in that category or how would you like to describe it? Look, I think technically, uh, if we need to be technical about these things, it's called, it would be speculative literary fiction, but I have, I've, have used a lot of magical realism in it. It's a genre that I love um, and, I, and I have a lot of fun with it and um, I'll be doing more of it. Because everyone comes back to the House of Many Promises, which is where we find Grana Adams providing care packages, food packages for people that are displaced. But some of the other things that we've got here, a ghost is a sort of intermittent narrator. Yes. I wanted a, a, a perspective that couldn't be given just by you know, Claire or... Robbie or Grana, I wanted a, a kind of a perspective from globally that a ghost could give. It's um, more universal and historical, giving dimension to some of the things they're going through in yes. some ways. Um, we've got being, we're, we're led by a cat at one stage. I can't read out, we haven't got time. But uh, cats have a sort of mystical 
quality. Yes, and the cats again presented themselves and insisted on having their place in in the story. And and again, there's something I ended up having a lot of fun with. But I'm very I'm very fond of Ravishy the cat. Um, we've got uh, the scent of memory. Robbie's given a smell and the scent of memory at one stage. We've got something that's very macabre, which is a refugee hunting ground. Almost frightening. And, and a refugee reality TV show. And I, and I have to say, I truly hope the world never, ever gets to the point where that's, that's feasible. But Given the nature of reality TV at the moment, it's not uh, far off, I'm afraid. Um, so, yes, we have all of these. We are running out of time. The, um, the resolution, in many ways, is, is the ghost, finally, uh, giving the final chapter to provide perspective on this. But there's a bushfire... At the end, Robbie and Ella are um, trying to sort of reconcile their relationship to bring it yes. uh, back together and they're the hope for the future in some ways. Yeah, and I, and I do think some people have said, oh, there's a lot of darkness and, and there is. There, is, there are things in the book that are dark, but I think there's also hope. And that's the important thing to remember. Given all the changes we're going through, hope for the future. The book is closing down. The author... Sally Abbott. We haven't got time to talk about the Rochelle Prize. She's the inaugural winner of the Rochelle Prize, and it's a hashay release. Right. Well, thank you. Well, I started talking about celebrity, and uh, now we're going to continue on because I got it mucked up, didn't I? <laughs> I? Alex, when we think of celebrity, we think of a star, a film, and screen. Someone who walks the red carpet. And your book, Mammoth Mistake, has such a star. Alex Miles, welcome to 3CR. Hello, thanks who for having is, me. Who is your main character in Mammoth Mistake? So Mammoth Mistake um, sees Olive Black, who is our leading lady. Um, she is a international mega movie star at the ripe old age of 10. Mm. And uh, yeah, so that she's the lead. So Olive Black, child actress. She also has a co-star who has said, it's a total treat being on set with your best friend. Oh, who is that? And <laughs> how did they really get along? They do not get along very well at all. So Sophia Labouche is... Um, Sophia, the big man. <laughs> that's right. She is um, Olive's nemesis and um, unfortunately co-stars with Olive in um, plenty of films or in, in the series. She kind of comes in and out in different ways. Um, and she's the absolute opposite of, um, of Olive. And she was lots of fun to write. She's pretty much everything that you really dislike about celebrity culture and um, and magazine culture, I was able to really go to town with Sophia and have a lot of fun with her. Well, she's controlling. She's a bully. Yes. And, but what you're writing about, when you're writing about bully, you're doing it in a funny way. <laughs> Thank and you. A, a kid-friendly way because this is a kid's book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I thor- must admit I thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh, good. And um, you've written about friendship too. You know, as the nasty Sophia says, your friend probably only likes you because you're famous. Well, who was Olive's best friend? Olive's best friend is Rani, who um, lives down the road from Olive, um, and they are quite different. Um, so Olive, in her past life, she used to live in a sort of small coastal town. She was a surfer, and she ended up being spotted to be in this um, this surfing film, which became she won a big award for, and then her career shot off. She moved to the city. So Rani kind of, um, I guess, helps. She loves how grounded she is, and that she knows her better than anyone and she can really be herself around her and she knows that she's not being 
it's, she's not being a friend because she's famous. Like as in Rani is Ollie's friend because she really adores oh, their friendship. And, and, and what does Sophia say about that? I'm going to get uh, Alex <laughs> Miles just to read a little bit from her book. So this is at a press conference. Sophia looked at Olive, ignoring Rani altogether. Your friend is very dull, she said. Very dull people love to hang out with superstars like us because their lives are just so boring. (laughs) Well, when Olive isn't in front of the camera or doing interviews, she's at school with the other kids. And the readers would recognise all all those other kids in that school. There's the twins with... Twin, twin intuition? Yeah, twin intuition. Yeah. Intuition. The group of girls who just want to talk about lip gloss. Yes, yeah. And then there's the class clown, yeah. Nathan. Yes. Just tell us one of the things he does. He does a few things. I'm trying to well, remember one off the top of my head. Oh, well, threatens to throw snot balls at yes, them. Yes, yeah. He, I'm channeling someone from my primary school days <laughs> when I'm thinking of this. Um, yeah, Nathan, again, was lots of fun to write and having a few friends who are, are teachers and my parents are oh. teachers as well, they, um, they were definitely good research for and Nathan. Nathan's job every morning is to give the school news. Yes. And this is what I really thought was rather clever. We have, well, you writing about Olive listening to the school news and rewriting it. Yeah, so she um, and she does this throughout the series. She has a, a special notebook where she writes down all her ideas and scripts and even if she's got a difficult conversation to have with someone, she tries to write a script for it beforehand, which always ends yeah. up going wrong. Um, but yeah, so she imagines herself, she's a bit of a daydreamer too, so when Nathan's begrudgingly doing the notices, she um, imagines how much more exciting it would be if she was reading the notices and can kind of create and scripts for how liked as a reader is actually was a completely different writing style you know yeah. kids learn to write you know sort of storylines yeah but to actually learn to write a script yeah with directions and things it was yeah. Yeah, very clever thank you like, so yeah I'd worked at um Neighbours for a while in the script department there and then I've done a lot of playwriting and so I and I quite enjoy reading plays um I probably read more plays than I have novels in the part like previously um yeah so I quite it, it was fun to be able to write that sort of style in this book as well Yep, and of course there's Olive's family. There's the older brother, Liam, um, who, I'm quoting, he was good at acting overly nice to Olive when he wasn't intending to be nice at all. Oh, we all know Olive yeah. brothers that can do that. <laughs> and then she does have a nice mum and dad. And her security guard, Roger. <laughs> Roger. Who, who talks in uh, Cockney slang. Yes. Now, do kids really not understand or get the feel of Cockney Yeah, slang? we talked about that with my editor about whether it would be lost on this generation or not. And we felt that um, it probably isn't going to be a first-hand thing that they knew, but it would be an interesting thing for them to learn about. So we kind of tried to choose words and um, phrases that he'd use that were obvious enough that kids might be able to take them and, yeah. and use them themselves. China plate, yeah, frog and toad, <laughs> yeah. but ocean pearls was one I didn't. Yeah, know. I like that. So what what is um, Olive doing? What's the movie about? And so this, this connects um, right back into Yeah, so each book takes place on set of a different genre film and so whatever movie she's acting in kind of reflects what's going on in her real life. So in this one, um, the movie Mammoth Mistake is a time travel movie where she um, goes back in time and accidentally brings back to present day a woolly mammoth, um, as you do. And so she um, has this mammoth mistake in the movie and then in her real life she lets down her, her best oh. friend and then has to face um yeah I, I guess for the the lesson or the message in this one is just about um the fact that everyone makes mistakes and and what do you do 
um, when you make a mistake. And so that's kind of Olive's challenge in the yeah. book. Look, it it's, brings out some good discussion points from parents, you know, if they do read the book you know, and <laughs> laugh along with yeah. the kids. Yeah. Because there's the ones on bullying, but there's also the ones on friendship and um, mm. Yeah, I think and I think that was important to me writing it in that I think uh, hopefully she's a such a um a full fun character that the kids would be drawn in that way but I, the feedback I've had from um, parents and teachers who've read it is that that is there is a deeper message they've sort of said it's a bit like um, vegetables just made up like lollies so that they it's actually quite wholesome and good underneath <laughs> but the kids are going to look at the fancy covers and think oh that's a fun girl I want to know learn about absolutely so it's a different genres I know because uh, you cleverly link a character into the next book and uh the robbery riddle. Well, we've got detectives. What at the Halloween Queen? Yeah, that. So in the Halloween Queen, she's starring as a witch in a movie. Oh. So this one comes out in July, and um, in her real life, so she's wearing all these hideous face prosthetics, and in her real life, she um, for the first time faces some sort of body image issues, oh. and it's about identity and um, yeah, just about how people always tell you it's what's on the inside that counts, but doesn't always work in practice. <sighs> so, so this whole series, uh, the Oliver Black series by Alex Miles but you know I, I, in little kids love talking in acronyms we OMG well we <laughs> yeah. TEO total embarrassment overload and PTAP prettier than a princess <laughs> yes. but there's PWD Yes, which isn't in the Olive books, but is another um, acronym that I was in a book I've written previously called 60 Secrets for a Happy Bride, and that is um, post-wedding depression. Post-wedding depression. Mm. Which I I wrote as an acronym for the – I thought, oh, that'll make a nice chapter heading. And then I worked out it actually is a real thing once I researched it. And so, yeah, it's kind of about when people have all this energy and such a build-up to a wedding and then feel a great sense of (laughs) – um, you know, yes. emptiness and um, after the wedding. Well, the, this 60 Secrets for a Happy Bride, I must admit, I bought this as a future mother of the Woo-hoo! groom. <laughs> and I just sort of thought it was so sensible. And we have, you know, in a whole um, chapter on budgeting, one of those chapters called The Bank of Mum and Dad. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And really, a lot of the things that, you know, sort of written in here, the 60 Secrets, are very readable. And uh, the I in wedding, also the we in yeah. Yeah, wedding. yeah. The uh, I'm no Shakespeare. What about the vows? Yeah, <laughs> and you sort of cover so much stuff. I really thought, oh, choosing your paparazzi. Yeah. I had no idea that they were so expensive. Yeah, just what you choose them for. Yeah, and seating plan, plan Tetris. I thought, oh, anybody has to do a seating plan. <laughs> it is phenomenal. Now. Alex Miles, I know, has done other writing. She's spoke about this. She's, she's. Uh, I've actually viewed, um, watched a play you did about cricket, which I thought was really funny. Oh, great! There's cricket ideas yes. in uh, this book, and I know she's also written the book about sixty secrets for a happy bride. Now, Sally, what other writing have you done? Um, Closing down is my is my first um, creative fiction writing. Um, I've spent most of my life working with words as a journalist and and in PR and marketing. Um, So I have come to it rather later than most people do, but um, I sort of feel that that closing down and the, the, the many elements that are in there and the many characters and is really a culmination of, of sort of many, many, many stories. And I, I really don't 
know that I could have written this book, say, 10 or 20 years ago. Because the journalistic industry or the industry of journalism has is closing down in some ways. Well, I, yeah, and then the more I thought about the title, I mean, so many things are closing down um, that, or, or changing so dramatically. Is there an, another way of looking at that? What's opening up, do you think, for, for writers? Look, I guess the whole... Um, world of social you know social media and and perhaps different ways of telling our stories but you don't have to be a very good writer to go into social media that is true (laughs) (laughs) but the good ones stand out i think yes they do but you've got to find and you do but you can find them and they are out there absolutely Mm, mm, mm. well alex Mills, i want to finish with you too about you know we've talked about your um writing for neighbors your playwriting you've written other children's books yeah as a as a ghostwriter in the zach power series so i've written eight eight of the zach power books which we've done really really well they were very big series um so that's been that was a lot of fun that was through hardy grant and um really it was a great opportunity just to learn the editorial process and um and sort of then i've been able to sink my teeth in my own series now Mm-hmm. But there's another avenue for writers, prizes. It gets oh. me back to a question. Sally, the, the Rochelle Prize, what's that? Um, the Rochelle Prize was um, established in 2015 and it was in honour of Matt Rochelle, who was the CEO of Hashit Australia, who was very tragically killed in an accident in Sydney in 2014. And his family in Hashit Australia... Um, and The Guardian and the Emerging Writers Festival got together to establish this prize for an unfinished manuscript. So you are asked to submit the first three chapters, which I had, and on the back of that, um, I was offered a contract, a publishing contract with Hashit. So how long were you working on closing down before that? Uh, I started, I, I put the first sort of 30,000 words together back you know, quite a few years ago. Um, and it sat in a bottom drawer, as a lot of manuscripts do. <laughs> and when I saw this prize, I thought, well, what the hell, you know, let's see what happens. And then it all came together. Had you finished it by that time? No. No. No, I, no, I only had, had about the first five or six chapters. Really? And I was very, very lucky. I mean, I think there were 970 entries in that prize that year. And so I was very lucky to win and I was even luckier to get a contract which had a deadline attached and which, you know, I had to get it together and finish the book. <laughs> so you put everything else aside and just... Yeah, as much as you can. I mean, I have a, I have a day job, but, you know, you, you do what you need, you need to do. And I understand deadlines. It's one thing in life I understand. So if someone says, you've got six months to do this, then, okay, I'll, I'll get it done somehow. And is there another book on the way? There will be. There will be in the same sort of genre, speculative fiction? I think so. Because it's not necessarily something we've associated with Australia. Well, I haven't associated with Australian writers necessarily. Look, I think it's a growing sector. Um, I've been on some panels with with some very good writers um, who are working in, in this area. And I think climate change, the environment... All, the, all those issues are, are really having to come into play. It, it speaks of the need for finding new ways to talk about what's happening in a very changing, rapidly changing world. Or Jan. just the fun of the classroom. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, that takes us out for another week. Uh, I was talking to Sally Abbott about closing down, hash a release. And I was speaking with Alex Miles about her olive black and series. it's Radiothon next week. And it's Radiothon next week. But we do week. have an author. 
Yeah. Oh, yes, we've got an author coming in and we hope to hear from lots of people. So please listen in and uh, ring in next week. It's Ruminations now.